just into the book of 2 Samuel now, our second sermon into the book of 2 Samuel. Though the two were originally one book, you should know, at one point, so you can consider them one book, even though they're separated. So if you want to turn... Oh, there we are. Did you guys not hear anything I said in the beginning? <laughs> that would explain why you didn't say good morning to me. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 17. And if you remember the context of this, um, David has just heard about the great defeat of Israel. The Philistines have defeated Israel, have killed Saul and his son Jonathan. He's just heard about that, and um, now he's responding to that with this lament. So, we'll read... 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother. Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we come to you to worship you this morning. Lord, please accept our worship. Help us to see you, to recognize you as God, as King over all the earth, and teach us through your word, we pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to understand. Um, help us not to close ourselves off from your word, but be, uh, be encouraged by it. Um, and, Lord, to um, open our hearts to what you have to say, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I grieved the fall of a mighty man. Some of you may know the name Ravi Zacharias. He was a Christian apologist who 
defended Christian truth around the world in universities, in debates, in his writings. He was an incredible communicator. Uh, God placed him in just the right place at just the right time to challenge the doubts of skeptics and cynics and to deepen the faith and the confidence of many wavering Christians. He died on May 19th this past year. At the time, one of the most widely respected Christian evangelists in the world. Sadly, this last week, his organization released a crushing report into his life that confirmed an extensive history of sexual misconduct over many years. I found myself saying with David, how the mighty have fallen. David's lament gives us a picture into what it looks like to grieve when the mighty fall. Uh, There are a bunch of practical lessons for us in this text. But what we need to see most of all when the mighty fall is the importance of trusting Christ. He is the only mighty one who did not fall because of his own sins. He is the only one who did not fall in defeat, who did not fall in shame, but who fell in victory to defeat shame and to defeat that great final enemy, death itself. So how do we grieve when the mighty fall? Well, first, we need to recognize that grieving is good. We can see that just from the fact that this lament is here in our Bibles and many other laments for that matter. Uh, But this one is, is specifically situated. It's got context to it. And we see here that grieving is good. Grieving death is good. That's my first point. And the reason it's, it's so important to notice this, for me to point this out, is because this is not how the world treats death all the time. Uh, if you like classic Russian literature, maybe there's at least a few of you out there, uh, there is this great short story by Leo Tolstoy. It's called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And this guy, Ivan, he's dying. And everyone around him knows it, but no one will acknowledge it or talk to him about it. And it just makes him so angry. He just wants someone to face the truth with him about what's actually happening. He's dying. You see this sometimes. In our culture, people are nervous to actually talk about death or they joke about it. Or maybe even worse, they try to act like it's just something normal. It's just this process, you know, where we give back to the earth. It's just the next step in life. But that is not what the Bible says about death. Death is not normal. It is evil. It is part of the curse. Jesus wept in anger at the tomb of his friend Lazarus because he hated death, and he was right to hate it. David and his men were right, back in verses 11 to 12, to stop everything and just grieve the death of Saul, Jonathan, and the warriors of Israel. We looked at this last week uh, in verses 11 to 12. Notice how they just left 
the Amalekite, right, who brought this news, they just left him standing there all day long as they grieve. Their weeping interrupts dealing with him and, and makes itself structurally, as Jonathan pointed out last week, structurally, that is the center of the text because their grief is their priority. It is important. It is good to grieve death. Now, I do want you to notice a difference between the way that they grieve back in verses 11-12, which is uh, much more emotional. Uh, it's sort of in-the-moment grief, right? We're told they, they tear their clothes, uh, they, they weep, they fast, all these physical reactions. But in this text we're looking at today, David's lament shows us a type of grief that is much more intellectual. One commentator I read calls this thoughtful grief. So this will be my second point, thoughtful grief. Because I, I do think, you know, there are different ways that people grieve uh, death or grieve hard things in their life. Some people are very emotional in their grief, but others find it difficult to express their grief emotionally. They're not uh, much of a weeper. Uh, they need an intellectual outlet uh, for their grief. I think everyone needs this to some degree when they're grieving, which is where writing down your thoughts to, to get as close as possible to the, the feeling of grief as you can can be so helpful. And I don't mean just gushing out your thoughts, right? That's not what we see David doing here. This is a carefully crafted lament. He's, he's choosing a certain shape for his grief. And as we'll see, he's even trying uh, to, to accomplish certain goals with his grief. When we take time to be thoughtful about our grief, we process it. We give it value. We give it direction. We avoid the twin problems of either drowning in grief or, uh, or ignoring grief, bottling it up. And I think when we've intentionally grieved, it helps us not to feel guilty when we move on from our grief, at least as much as we can. So David's lament is a form of thoughtful grief that we can learn from. And notice, thirdly, that this is public grief that David expresses. Public grief. That's my third point. And this point doesn't apply as directly to our lives as perhaps the first might, though I do think there's a public aspect to grieving that is important. But in, in David's case, his lament, it's actually an act of leadership. Okay? It's an act of leadership. Notice his intention in verse 18, that uh, this lament be taught to, to the, all the people of Judah. And the narrator tells us that it was written in the book of Jashar. All we really know about this, this book of Jashar is that it was some sort of important record of crucial moments in, in Israel's history. Uh, it had you know, selections of poetry and, and songs, laments like this one in it. Um, so the fact that David's lament was written in that book tells us it had wide circulation and it, was, it, it had an important place in Israel's history in defining how people thought about Israel's history. 
So what does David do by making his grief public, and by having it, this lament, taught to the people of Judah? Well, he tells Israel how to remember Saul and Jonathan. And that's what we do in times of public grief too, don't we? In memorials, we, we tell each other how to remember those we've lost. But the way that David remembers Saul in this lament is unbelievably gracious. Uh, so this is my fourth point about grief. David remembers the good, and he chooses to forget the evil. He remembers the good and chooses to forget the evil. He is gracious. Isn't that what we see David do here? We all know, after this series that we've been going through, this sermon series, and surely all the people of Israel knew that Saul had done some terrible things. But David doesn't mention any of them here. I have to imagine in his heart he had to work through these at some point. Yet, publicly, David has chosen to let go of these things. In this lament, in a sense, I think he publicly acquits Saul of these things. He tells the people of Israel, let's not remember that Saul. Let's remember him better than he deserved to be remembered. Now listen, I'm not saying when someone does evil, those things should not be properly dealt with, should not be judged. The sexual misconduct of Ravi Zacharias will have terrible consequences that need to be dealt with, and his victims need to be properly listened to and cared for. And in fact, there are some consequences to Saul's wickedness as well that David will have to deal with later on in his in his reign. We'll get to those in our series on David's life. But how do we remember a man like Ravi? David seems to suggest that we should offer grace when the mighty fall. We remember the good and we choose to forget the evil. David has to, the right to make this point. Because he, perhaps more than anyone in Israel, was sinned against by Saul. If, if anyone has the right to tarnish Saul's legacy and condemn him post-mortem, make sure everybody knows just how poorly David was treated by this guy, that's, that's his right. That's David. But he does not exercise that right. It reminds us of our Savior, Jesus doesn't it? How he forgave the very people who crucified him as he hung dying on the cross. Now you may be asking the question, can David even say anything good about Saul and not be lying? Is there truthfully anything good to say about this guy? So we need to remember that when Saul was chosen as king, uh, 1 Samuel 8, tells us there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. As, as one of the commentators uh, that I read puts it, if you were casting a movie, you'd pick Saul to be the king every time. He was the perfect 
at least physically, he was the perfect guy for the job. Uh, He was the very best that Israel had to offer. He was the glory. And so when David says in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain, he's not just blowing smoke. He's not being disingenuous. This is how Saul started out. He was the best that Israel had to offer, the guy who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He looked like a king. And then jumping ahead to verses 22 to 24, David mentioned some other things about Saul and Jonathan. And, and it's true, I will say, that having Jonathan together with Saul, that might have helped David to uh, make some of these compliments without being insincere. Certainly his comment in verse 23 about them uh, not being divided in life and death, I think that one is, is, is pretty much thanks to Jonathan, right? He is the one who was loyal to Saul uh, all the way to death. And yet, again, if we go back and we were to look at sort of the beginning of Saul's ministry, which I know we didn't look at in our series, we looked at the life of David, we didn't really look at the life of Saul, but in the beginning of Saul's reign, Saul and Jonathan, they were mighty men. We would see that. Before Saul became king, Israel had been so oppressed by the nations around them, they didn't even have any weapons at the time. They were scattered, they were broken. They didn't have anyone to to bring them together. Yet Saul, with Jonathan by his side, he united the 12 tribes. He brought prosperity back to Israel. That's what we see in verse 24, talking about the scarlet clothes and the golden ornaments. It's referring to the prosperity that Saul brought to Israel. Um, Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel talks about how Saul and Jonathan had to fight enemies on every side. There were nations all around them. You had different nations attacking them, and there was hard fighting all through the reign of Saul. They, they fought hard. And Saul brought the nation together, and there are true things that David, looking back, can say about Saul and Jonathan to remind Israel of the good that they had done. You know, when people have done evil to us, Sometimes that's all we remember about them. Uh, we, we dwell on those things, the things that they've done to us. And we easily forget or have trouble even remembering any of the good things that they may have done in the past or continue to do. It says something about the extent to which David had forgiven Saul, that he can remember the good Saul did. He's not controlled by anger and bitterness towards Saul because he had the power to forgive. The power to forgive. That's a power that frees us. In verse 26, David does say a few specific things about his friend Jonathan. And this is clearly where his heart is most exposed in this lament. He is distressed for the loss of Jonathan. Um, David says that the, the faithful love Jonathan offered him was extraordinary. Beyond the faithfulness and the intimacy that David had ever experienced in his relationships with women, that's referring to his wives, I think, there. Remember, given the public goal 
of this lament. This is an incredibly vulnerable statement for David to make about Jonathan. He's being very personal here, um, given that he's wanting to teach this to all the people of Judah. I think in our culture today, people don't talk about their friendships with those of the same gender in this way, especially not publicly. Your love to me was extraordinary. That's not a comment you often hear people say about their friends. And in fact, I want to warn you that because of that, you may hear some modern interpreters try to claim that there may have been some sexual relationship between David and Jonathan. And I want to tell you, you can safely dismiss that view entirely. It has no grounds in Scripture. It only reflects, and I think tells us something, about our culture's obsession with sexualizing any intimacy or affection it regards as abnormal. If it's not normal, according to the shifting definitions of the world we live in, it must be sexual in some way, shape, or form. This tendency, this is not a good thing for our relationships. I recall as a teenager having this fear, like if I'm not careful about how I express my affection for my friends or my, uh, my friendship with them, well, maybe people might think I'm gay. Or maybe as adults, you've had the feeling, uh, like, because I'm married, I can't talk to uh, people of the opposite gender about things that actually matter to them because they or someone else might misunderstand my intentions. These are examples of ways that cultural values have negatively shaped our relationships in ways that don't reflect how the Bible pictures positive relationships. Now, we can't just completely walk away from our shared cultural language, our way of understanding relationships, right? It's, it's how we understand one another. But I think as we address some of these things together, we can at least reform aspects of our own church culture. You know, we can learn to expect more affection and intimacy in our relationships with those in the church than we might expect in the world, and than what the, what the world might think is normal. So I know this has been kind of an aside from our discussion of grief, but I, I just wanted you guys to see that this intimacy between David and Jonathan, uh, this is something to be admired and to be sought after, not something to be questioned. So, we see here that David grieves the fall of the mighty by remembering the good and forgetting the evil, and he does that publicly before the people of Israel. He gives honorable closure to Saul's reign, but there's, there's something else that we can see David doing in this lament, something he's trying to do with it. Uh, he is seeking to motivate the people of Israel. So that's now my fifth point. Grief that motivates, we'll call it. So my fifth point, grief that motivates. If we go back to verses 20 to 21, we see David remind Israel of two locations. You see that right there. He reminds them of uh, Philistia. He says, don't tell the news in Gath or Ashkelon. Those are two of the Philistines' main cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Of course, 
David knows full well that everybody in those cities is going to be partying all night long over their victory. He's currently living in the land of the Philistines. So this has to really sting as he hears people celebrating their defeat of the Israelites, celebrating their defeat of his God, the true God. So why does David draw this picture in his lament? Because he wants it to sting. He's like a sports coach reminding his team of the taunts of their enemies to get them riled up before the game. He wants Israel to feel the shame of their defeat so they are motivated to fight back. It's the same with the second picture, the mountains of Gilboa. It's a picture of shame. All right, David curses the mountain because it's the place where Israel was defeated. He pictures the shields of the warriors lying on the battlefield, perhaps covered in the filth of battle on that barren hilltop. He does it to motivate Israel. He wants the death of Saul and Jonathan and all those warriors of Israel to do something, to get Israel ready to fight the enemies of the Lord. In the same way, grief can be a motivator for us, too. When we see the fall of a man like Rabbi Zacharias and the shame that it brings upon God's people, we ought to be motivated to fight the evil that Rabbi fell into. Now, under the new covenant, we don't fight like David and his men with swords loud clashing, but with deeds of love and mercy. Now let me go further, because I think that grief, more generally, not just, not just in relation to death or in relation to the fall of the mighty, grief can always be a motivator for us. Because behind all grief in your life is the curse of sin. Behind the death of your loved one is the curse of sin. Behind the pain of your body is the curse of sin. Behind the, the discord in your relationships is the curse of sin. Seeing this reality should motivate us to fight sin and all that upholds it. The shame of sin's defeat is intended to harden our resolve against it. In the same way that David intends these images of Philistia and Gilboa to harden Israel against their enemy. I think we can also say that insofar as Saul's defeat is the result of his failure to listen to God, we can be reminded that when we also fail to listen to God, sin wins. And so the fall of men like Saul or Rabbi Zacharias motivates us by warning us that sin is not to be trifled with. Accountability, humility, any willingness to open our lives to people and have them speak God's truth into our lives. That's just so important. There's no limit to the human ability to rationalize or justify our actions. And so we need to allow people to ask us questions face to face and show us. What does God's words say? 
that relate to our life. Okay, so finally and sixthly, I want you to see that this text shows us that when the mighty fall, we need to trust the anointed one. So my sixth point, trusting the anointed one. You see, for the Israelites, what this lament tells them is that David is worthy of their trust. He has forgiven their previous king, Saul. He is appropriately mourning for him. He's motivating them to move into the future. And this lament, this is really just the crowning piece of that argument. You may have noticed over the past couple weeks how careful the writer of First and Second Samuel has been to make clear that David had nothing to do with the death of Saul and Jonathan. Right? That point is made over and over and over again. If you start to look for it, you'll see it everywhere. Uh, we've got uh, two different stories that we went through where uh, David has Saul in his hands and he refuses to harm him. Right? They're like preparing us for this point. Uh, first, there's the one where he's in the cave and David cuts off the corner of his robe. And then there's the one where the, uh, Saul's sleeping and David sneaks up and takes the, the jug of water and the spear. And then, um, you know, we, we're told how, we're told in detail, really, how David is not allowed to fight with the Philistines, right? He's sent home. This is very important that we see this. Uh, and, and even that he's off chasing the Amalekites when the battle happens, so he couldn't possibly be there. And on, on top of that, last week we saw, um, you know, not only David's urgent grief, showing that he, he actually was truly grieving the death of Saul and Jonathan, but also he um, executes the, the, the guy who claims, at least, to have killed Saul. And the text also explains how David ended up with Saul's crown, right? Again, the, 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 making sure we understand David is trustworthy. He had nothing to do with Saul's death. And this lament, then, is the final sort of definitive proof. This is going to be taught to all the people of Israel. And it's the definitive proof that David had no role in Saul's downfall. And thus, for the people of Israel, he's worthy to be their king. He's worthy to be their king. And yet, for us now, a problem remains. Because as glorious as, as a king David will be, and as mighty a warrior against the kingdom of evil and darkness, he will fall too. We know that. We know the story of David. And he will die too. We know that. He's human. And so this text forces us in our context to recognize that there is only one mighty warrior who we can trust. There is only one mighty warrior who fell only to rise again. And his fall is the only fall throughout the entire history of the world, and the world has seen many great falls of many great men. His is the only one that was purely intentional. He did not have his life taken from him. He laid it down. It was a plan. He planned it with the Spirit and the Father from before the time. And it was purely sacrificial. He did not fall because of even the slightest darkness in his own heart. He fell because of the dark stains in, in your heart, in my heart. 
the dark stains of David's heart, and for all those human leaders like Ravi who fail us, but for whom there is still forgiveness and mercy when they turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. Do not make any person or thing your glory or your mighty warrior except for Jesus. His love is the only love in the entire world of which it can be truly said that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this, for this passage, for this lament written by David long ago and, and passed down to us faithfully how it leads us into the importance of grief. It shows us how it can even be used in our lives to motivate us to fight against evil. We thank you for how this passage teaches us to remember those who, who die, whether people who are easy to honor in death or people that are difficult to honor in death. David shows us it is good to remember people better than they deserve to be remembered. We offer grace and mercy because we have received grace and mercy. And Lord, we praise you for how this passage drives us to our Savior. He is our mighty warrior, and it is in his love that we trust. It will not fail. It will not be defeated by death or time, it has conquered the power of death and sin. And in this hope, Lord, we live. In Jesus' name, amen.